Well, speaking of pigs, um, if you would like to join us for Easter lunch, you're welcome to. If you don't have somewhere to go uh, on Easter, if you don't have somewhere to go, family or friends, uh, come join us. Um, it'd be great if we had a number, but if not, come anyway and we'll fit you where we fit you. So, All right, so we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21, verses 17 uh, through 36. Hear now the word of the Lord. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done to the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself among, along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idol, idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! This is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And so, Father, we need you. Um, we thank you for your word, this wonderful gift that you've given us. We thank you that you've put the Holy Spirit inside of us to help us understand. And we, we pray that you would help us by the Holy, Holy Spirit to understand what we have read and what we will soon hear preached. We pray, Father, for the anointing of the Spirit upon the preacher and hearer alike. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. We come to a, a difficult passage, and one that I didn't realize was all that difficult until I started reading the commentaries. And they all started disagreeing one with the other. That's when you know you're in trouble. 
Uh, so there are a lot of things in this text that are, are not difficult. Uh, this is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He has ended uh, his last recorded missionary journey, and this is the last time that we will see Paul a free man for the rest of our study of the books of, book of Acts. Uh, this passage is going to end with the arrest of Paul, which had been prophesied uh, over him and to him time and time and time again. Jesus told him, the Holy Spirit told him, prophets told him this was coming, and it, and it did indeed come. Those things are not uh, in question. What's so hard about this text? Well, what's hard about this text is we see um, this relationship between the Old Testament law, these old ceremonial laws, and the Christian. What, what is the relationship to those two meant to be? Back in these days, the, the, world was, the Christian world was more or less divided into two camps. You had those who came from a Jewish background and those who came from a Gentile background. Those who came from the Jewish background, many, many of those people still continued to follow much of those Old Testament ceremonial laws. They no longer looked to them for salvation, but they had a relationship to the temple and the temple worship that, that would be certainly uncomfortable to those of a Gentile background. But here's the thing. More and more, the number of Christians um, who are being converted, those who are being converted more and more were, were Gentiles. Fewer and fewer Jews were being converted. And, and by demographics, the church was overwhelmingly Gentile. And the center of the Christian world was shifting from Jerusalem to Gentile lands. And in this context, Paul returns home, returns rather back to the Jerusalem church to report what had happened on his third missionary journey. And, and he's asked to take part in some of the Old Testament ceremonial rituals. The question then is, did Paul forsake the gospel? Did he go back to the old and forgetting what Christ had done? Or was he simply trying to navigate this division that existed within the church. Now, I'll tell you up front, I don't think Paul sinned here. Uh, and I have a lot of good commentaries to back me up. If you disagree with me, you will have many commentaries to back you up too. But we will look at this, try to figure out what we can, and then we're going to look at the principles that Paul uses, uh, which we have from his, other, from his letters, that he might have been using to help navigate this. Because the reality is that we all face impossible situations. And we are all called to live in, um, in, a, in a context of living one with another. And, and when one and another live together, there's, there are always going to be sources of tension. There are always going to be sources of differing opinions. So how can we think through and use Paul's examples here as we try to plan and prepare ourselves for how to live one with another when we disagree? All right, so let's look at our text. Well, our text begins with Paul's arrival into Jerusalem in verse 17. And he was received with great joy, great joy from the brothers and sisters there. You'll remember that um, Paul knows, it, because of a lot of ways, that he's walking into a place where he's not going to escape a free man. Uh, and when he gets there, when he gets to Jerusalem, before he is imprisoned... He goes the very next day to what appears to be a closed session meeting that is led by the moderator of the Jerusalem church, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and all the elders from the churches in Jerusalem. 
Tradition tells us that there were probably about 70 elders, but we, we don't know that. That's not given to us in the text. Another thing that's not explicitly told us in the text, but we know from elsewhere, is one of the things that would have happened in this meeting is that Paul would have delivered all of the money that he had been collecting along his third missionary journey for the Jerusalem church. We've seen this in some of our past studies, that they were collecting money to give to the impoverished Jewish Christians who lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas because there was a famine going on. And so the Gentile Christians from the lands far beyond where anyone had ever thought or dreamed of going were sending their finances back to Jerusalem to help them out. It was a a great physical manifestation of the unity and union they had in Christ. And in the days before dollar bills, all of this would have been in silver. You think about Paul, I bet he was tired of dragging around those big old money bags. And he would have deposited them before the elders, giving them this gift. And, but then they, we read from the text, so they rejoiced greatly because of all that had happened. Paul had much to report after each one of his missionary journeys. He goes to Jerusalem to, to report to the apostles and to the church what had happened along the way. We read this in this context as well in verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done amongst them, among the Gentiles, through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. You think about all the great things. It's fun being a bearer of fun and good news, isn't it? And they rejoiced together at how Paul had gone back through Galatia and Cappadocia, taking um, his encouraging presence to those whom he had seen converted in his other ministries. He would go to Ephesus and spend two to three years, and, and there would be such revival in Ephesus that it would, in, in the short term, become really the center of the Christian world. And it would become certainly the center of Christian mission as all of Asia Minor was reached through these two to three years of Paul's ministry there. And then he would have his difficult visit to the Corinthian church, where there was a lot of division there, but he was able to do great ministry, and he would write the book of Romans. He could tell them about the young man who died listening to him preach. You remember Eutychus? And they all ran down, and there was Eutychus dead on the ground, and the Lord raised him from the dead. And he could tell them of the sweet sorrow of parting, of speaking with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. There are so, so many exciting things he got to convey. And they rejoiced. They didn't just sing the doxology once. The Greek here indicates that it was an ongoing thing. This would have been a season of singing and praising God for all that he had done. You know, as a matter of quick application here, note here, Uh, who Luke says gets the credit. It's really interesting how Luke puts it here. He related one by one the things that who had done? God had done through the ministry of Paul. That's an important thing, and it's an important thing for us not to miss. That when exciting things happen, when there's much to be joyful about, whether in the church or whether in your life, whether you hit a homer this season or get the turkey in the field, whether you get the bonus you were hoping for, if their parental successes aren't those sweet when they come, who do we give credit to? To whom do we give credit when those things happen? God used us. It might be through us, but God 
gets the credit. And they're very quick here. You know, this certainly goes against this idea of, of preacher hero worship that we see in our culture. You know, we're, we're quick to praise the likes of John MacArthur and Tim Keller and John Piper and J.I. Packer and, you know, all these great guys. Um, but, but none of those guys would want you to glorify them. They all want you to glorify Jesus. Paul does not steal the show for himself here. Instead, he joins them in giving glory to God. But then things shift gears rather starkly. It's amazing how starkly they, they shift gears. It's almost a non sequitur. It does not follow. They are rejoicing and giving praise to God, and then they open their mouths and say, Look here, Paul. There are these thousands who have become believers of the Gentile nation. Right? Praise God. Praise God that there's revival that's been going on in Jerusalem while he's gone. But, but there's tension. And in fact, there are these rumors that have been going around. What are these rumors about? Well, there's tension within the church. You have to remember that the New Testament church was first populated only by Jews. They were the first converts for a long time. Only Jews. Finally, the Gentiles, those who weren't from the Jewish background, little bit by little bit, and then all of a sudden an explosion. Thousands and thousands of Gentiles become Christians. This is some 25 years after Paul first came to Jerusalem to tell the apostles that he had been uh, chosen by God to be an, an apostle to the Gentiles. And by this time, the church is overwhelmingly Gentile. Now here's the thing, the, Gen the Jerusalem church, while it would continue... Uh, to have importance, its influence was waning. Its influence was waning. But in many ways, they didn't know it. Right? They were more or less in their sunset years of, uh, of, of influence and leadership. And so what's the problem? Verses 20b through 21. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them to not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem had a much closer relationship to temple worship, especially at festivals, uh, than would probably make most of us all that comfortable. Does that make sense? Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. The leadership in Jerusalem, they were all Jews. The apostles, they were all Jews. We saw the apostles teaching and worshiping in the temple courts early on in the book of Acts. For a long time, Christians who came from a Jewish background did not remove themselves from temple worship. They wouldn't have done the sacrifices, or at least they shouldn't have. There's, there's question about when that ended. But in many ways, this is a time of, of transition. For this tension is going to end in about 13 years because in A.D. 70, something really important happens. And that's the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And so until then, they have to figure out what role those Old Testament things uh, play in a Christian's life. The rumor was going around, and it was the wrong rumor, mostly. The rumor was saying that Paul was telling the Jews who were being converted in those outside Gentile lands, away from Jerusalem, not to obey the Old Testament law and certainly don't circumcise your children 
right? And all of these cultural things that we do, you can't do those anymore. What really happened? What's the record? Is that rumor correct? Well, it's yes and no, right? No in its most parts. Yes, and that Paul was real clear to both Jew and Gentile alike that circumcision does not save you. The Old Testament rituals do not save you. These sacrifices do not save you. He's going to tell everyone in Romans chapter 3, verse 30, God will justify the circumcised, the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, how? By faith. There's one way to salvation, that's faith in Christ Jesus. So if that's what they meant, sure, that's exactly what he's saying. But they instead have said that Paul is saying you may never do these things. And that's not what Paul said. We know this because Paul had Timothy, his travel companion, circumcised in order to be able to reach the Jews. But then others, in Galatians 2 verse 3, when others said that Titus had to be circumcised in order to be saved, he said, no, we're not doing that. So what does this mean? How do we parse this out? And how do we get to application for 21st century life in Bruton? Well, it meant that many of the ceremonial washings, the rituals, and customs of the Jews were not wrong in and of themselves. But they belonged to the old way of living. They belonged to the shadow rather than to the thing itself. Christ had come and fulfilled all those things, And to hang on to them, eh, probably not the wisest thing, but you're holding on to something that pointed to Jesus, even though Jesus has come. But as long as someone held on to Christ alone for salvation, instead of those ceremonies, they were what are called things indifferent, or adaphora. Things that that certainly raise important questions, but Christians have the right to do them or not. I'm not talking about animal sacrifices. That's in its own category. You know, we actually see this because Paul practiced many of the Jewish customs even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles. How do we know that? Well, earlier we saw in Acts chapter 18 that he took the Nazarite vow, the very one that he's going to help these men complete. And that was a time of setting yourself aside for special um, service and special a consecrated season of time to the Lord. So he himself did that. But what was, what was he worried about? He didn't get bogged down by these things. Rather, he sought to seek the lost and win them for Christ. Really the most helpful text to help us understand this, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23 not only help us understand what's going on here, but also it really helps us understand how we are to interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ when we disagree and even when we disagree vehemently. One thing you'll see in this text is that Paul's focus is not on the external, but rather on Jesus, the good of others, and seeking them for the Lord, seeking to win them for Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have, myself made, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to what? Win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. What does that mean? He would live under those Old Testament rituals. 
though myself not being under the law, and I might, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but rather the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. All right, so how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Let me give you an illustration. Uh, I've been in Bruton now for eight years, and I've often wondered, what if the Lord eight years ago had called me to be a pastor in Auburn instead of Bruton? I didn't apply there, but, but think about that. You know, many of you know, I'm, I'm an Alabama fan. And how do you think that would work out? I would have to become an Auburn fan. You've heard it from the pulpit. <laughs> this is a big deal. Because as an Alabama fan, I, I, it, it would be a non-starter to be a pastor in Auburn. I mean, the, the Auburn church, the Covenant church, there's several professors from the Auburn University who are elders there. right? And how could they be led by an Alabama fan? It wouldn't work. So I'd have to... <clears throat> I'd have to become an Auburn fan. <laughs> to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Auburn fan, I became an Auburn fan. Right? That really is what this looks like. To set aside one's own rights in order to reach the lost. And yet we're so focused on our own rights, aren't we? There are times to declare those and to, to stand fast on them. Paul will do that several times in Acts as he says, Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do that to me. But I think, I think, though, that we're all too quick, all too quick to focus on the secondary things rather than the primary things. Let me ask you something. Do politics matter? Yes. Yes, they do. More than probably any of us re- recognize. Should that destroy a Christmas dinner? No. Right? Does football matter? Oh, yeah. But should that set friends and family against each other? No. Isn't it silly that we let that happen? Is it important how and when we baptize? Yes, we differ with our brothers next door on this. It is important. They're important distinctions. Should we let that get in the way of our love and Christian witness together with them? Of course not. Do we worship differently than black churches? Yep. Although I think many white Presbyterians are going to be pretty, pretty surprised what worship in heaven is going to look like. Right? It's going to look a little different than... The frozen chosen here at uh, First Press. <laughs> you know, when Jesus occupies the lordship in our lives as he's supposed to, we run our decisions and our attitude and our kindness towards others not through our rights and through our desires, but rather through what God desires and what is good for the other. Lord, help me to do that. And that's what Paul's doing here. But what, but what if the per- other person really is wrong? And I'm not talking about Alabama-Auburn. Unfortunately, there is no right answer there. Although you do know our youth director, he is a Florida fan. And we can all agree on those sorts of things. <laughs> but I'm talking about things that when Scripture is really clear about. See, the, the thing is, God had revealed to Peter, like we talked about with the youth, that they really could eat pork. 
That these, and by this, the whole Old Testament ceremonial law, that these things were crumbling down and had really no place in our lives, I mean, they really were wrong and that these things belong to the past and they should move beyond them. And yet many still believe that it was wrong to eat pork, that you needed to participate in uh, the ritual washings, um, you know, do Passover together. Pork chops and oysters really were allowed, but many did not eat them. So what do you do? They really, are, they really were wrong. So what do you do? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 14 of the weaker and the stronger brother. Now, the weaker brother here is the one who is, who is, who is in the wrong. The stronger brother, it doesn't mean, look at me, I'm awesome stronger. It just means someone who is stronger in his walk with Jesus. And what does Paul say in Romans 14? Well, verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but don't quarrel over opinions. Verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 20, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Verse 23, Forever does not proceed from faith is sin. I think a, a very clear application in the South... And the southern church is alcohol. There's a really clear application here with this one. Um, you know, Scripture is really clear that God allows us to enjoy alcohol in moderation if it does not enslave us. Drunkenness is sin, period, full stop. If you're struggling with drunkenness, come talk to me. Let's, let me help you walk through that. Jesus himself drank uh, wine. He even made about 150 gallons of it. Uh, I mean, that's a lot of wine. Uh, at the, at, in his first miracle, his first miracle, making 150 gallons of wine. I think he had some things to say about wine. But that, that said, if I have, we have friends at the Baptist church, uh, and if they come to our house, we don't serve alcohol. Am I free to drink alcohol? Yes. But I'm not going to offend them by serving alcohol at my house. And I'm certainly going to try to hide it if their children are coming. Because I don't want their children, I don't want their parenting to be um, questioned by their children. Um, and certainly if they struggle with alcohol, I'm not going to serve it. Does that make sense? Right. So these are the kind of things that we have to think through. But, but notice who, who's, who has to focus there, there in those decisions. It's not me. It's what's for the good of my brother or sister in Christ. And that's so hard because I love myself so much. Don't you? This is the struggle of our flesh. Lord, help, help me really to love God and others more than I love myself. It's a daily struggle. So, so what's the proposed solution here? We're going to go a little over this morning, I regret to say. Uh, you know, preachers actually never regret to say that, just let you know that we're going to go a little long. Uh, so we return back to our text this morning. The Jerusalem leadership says... Okay, here's what we're going to do. We've got these guys. They're under a Nazarite vow. If you will please, uh, we're going to prove to everybody this is wrong. This is not true. If you'll go and help these men fulfill their Nazarite vow by paying their, the price of admission for what they need to do. And Paul says, okay. Now, this is where some say that Paul uh, forfeits the gospel. I don't think he did. Um, if you think that, then I love you, and we can disagree there. I think explicitly one of the reasons I don't think he sinned here is because Scripture never does not condemn him here. And I think we ought to be careful condemning someone in Scripture whom Scripture does not condemn. 
Scripture is real open about the sins of people and leaders. Think about David and Abraham and Moses and Peter and Thomas, all these pillars of the church. And the Scripture is rife with all of their mess-ups. But Paul isn't criticized here. Well, Paul begins helping these men finish their Nazarite vow, but he's not able to complete it. Why? Because they're these unbelieving Jews. These are not the Jews they were trying, Jewish Christians they were trying to walk that line with. These were unbelieving Jews who, as the seven days of the purification rites began to come to an end, they saw Paul in the temple and they either mistakenly or intentionally mistakenly said, This man has brought someone into the temple that he's not allowed to. And that's a Gentile. And he hadn't done this. It says, here's the man who has taught everyone everywhere against this place, this people, uh, and the law. The three things that really made you Jewish. And so they seize him, and they drag him out of the temple, and they shut the gates lest he come back in, and they start to beat him trying to kill him. Now you wonder what Paul was thinking right then. Man, I tried so hard to walk this line, and then this? Or... Well, I guess this is it. Or did he think in those moments? Did he have the clarity to remember the Holy Spirit had told him what was coming? It wasn't death. It was imprisonment. This crowd could not have killed him no matter how hard they tried. The way that God intervened to keep him from dying was that on the corner of the temple was the Roman fortress Antonia, or Antonia, I don't know how you pronounce this thing, And it's a hundred foot high fortress, had a barracks next to it. It was commanded by a Roman tribune, or rather a commander of a thousand. And there would have been 740, uh, 760 foot soldiers and 240 horsemen. And the one main goal was to keep peace in Jerusalem. And so there's the tribune, the leader of thousands, and he hears what's going on. He rushes out there with his centurions and his soldiers, and he seizes Paul in order to stop the process of whatever's happening. He goes to the source of the problem. He puts him in double chains, which means he probably chained each arm to a Roman soldier so he couldn't get away. He can't figure out what's going on, and so he takes him to the barracks. Now, at this point, the Jews realize that their chance, their last chance, is quickly evaporating as that man gets into the Roman barracks. They're trying to kill this guy. And so they try to kill him all the more. This is mob rule, mob violence. And it gets so bad that the Roman soldiers pick him up and carry him into the fortress. Paul next week, uh, no, three weeks I guess now, because we have Palm Sunday next week, is going to get a chance to address the Jews. And he is going to be given this pulpit by the Romans to declare to you what I declare, to declare to them what I declare to you, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the reason that we live and breathe. Jesus Christ is the one who, to whom you belong, body and soul. And if you're not a believer, you belong to him because he created you. If you're a believer, you belong to Him doubly because He has redeemed you by the precious blood of the covenant. And as we seek to to live out the Christian life together, we need to remember the fundamentals of the gospel. What what are the most important things in life? It is the, the shared blood of Jesus. 
the shared blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for all those who would come to Him in repentance and faith, turning their back on their sin, asking for forgiveness, and trusting in Christ. And suddenly we remember those things, and we remember in humility that there's nothing in us that that commends us to God, that makes God love us. Suddenly our squabbles, one between the other, over politics, over sports, over hunting, over whatever it is, those things suddenly get put in the right light. As we remember that Christ is Lord, and that we really are called to love Him and to love neighbor. Because certainly these squabbles will be gone. Do you think these squabbles will go on in heaven? They'll end, right? When all those things of the flesh are taken from us. My friends, I yearn for that day. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank you for the precious blood of Jesus. Help us then, Lord, um, to have this attitude of of, uh, walking in an understanding way with the weaker brother those with whom we disagree. Help us to see when we're the weaker brother, Lord. Give us this attitude that Paul had about winning the Jews and winning the Gentiles and that changed how he lived, Lord, that we would seek your glory, your kingdom, rather than our own. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.